I invite you to take your Bibles with me now and turn to John chapter 5 for our passage this morning. As you're doing so, I will remind us that uh, last week we witnessed Jesus healing uh, the son of a, an official in Capernaum by speaking healing from afar, from a distance. This was a new revelation for many on Jesus' power, on his ability to uh, perform great acts. It also helped verify his divinity as he's letting people know a little more and more each time that he is indeed God. And we will continue with that mindset, with that attitude, with that type of ministry as we come to our text today. Here we find Jesus back in Jerusalem observing a feast. But that's not the only purpose in his arrival. You see, Jesus had an appointment. An appointment with a man who waited 38 years for it. For this day, for this moment, for this opportunity to get to know his Savior. Jesus deals with people, and he deals with people on his timing and not ours. But we need to rest assured, Jesus' time is is impeccable. Uh, He doesn't miss his appointments. He does not forget things on the calendar. For Jesus is Lord. And what he does, he does for his glory and for our good. With all of that being said, I invite you to look with me to our text this morning as we see this play out. The beginning of John chapter 5, I'll begin at verse 1 and read through the 18th verse. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which had five roof colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man that said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. 
This is the word of our Lord. Would you please bow with me as we go to him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, this is your word for your people this day. We have heard it. And so we ask now that you would open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts, that not just hearing it this day, that, but we might also receive this word, that we might believe this word, that we might live out this word, and by doing so, our lives might be changed. We need the assurance that can come from realizing Jesus Christ is Lord. We need that more now than ever. And I pray that you would reveal that to us during this time. I pray this for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name, amen. There were a lot of perceived ideas about who or what the Messiah would be like. For many of the Jewish people, they were convinced, based on prophecy, that the Messiah would come and be another better King David. They look, often look to David as the prototype, as the almost their model for what a king should be. He conquered his enemies. He brought peace to the land. He grew the assets. He did many, many, many mighty things. He also fell into sexual immorality and murdered his best friend and stole his wife. He also took a census that caused through pride and arrogance, a portion of the people to be destroyed. David was not the man. But many looked to one like David because the Lord said the son of David would sit on the throne forever. 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, when you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So many of the Jewish people expected a, a conquering Savior. One who would come in with the, the force of the sword, and by conquest, get rid of their oppressors, namely the Romans, and establish a glorious kingdom like that which they had in the days of Solomon. We can look at other places in Scripture. We can go back to the very beginning. God promises in Genesis chapter 3 in His um, punishment of Adam and Eve and of, um, of the serpent, a seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That brings to mind a certain figure, Right? Someone brave and strong. Someone willing to put themselves at risk to step on the head of the enemy. Well, you have to have that picture in mind because when you look at Jesus, as He has ministered and as He has served, you now see the disappointment. You now see the contrast, right? You're expecting King David and you get a man who goes to Samaria and talks to women at wells and deals with tax collectors and fishermen. Many had a hard time believing that this Jesus is that guy. The conqueror. The hero. The savior. But Jesus would show throughout his ministry, throughout these interactions, time after time, again and again, 
He is the Messiah. He has the authority. He has the power. He has the ability, and yet he chooses not to utilize it. In fact, his great act of salvation will be a giving up of his own life. But we've got that to look forward to. Here in our text, Jesus demonstrates his lordship over the very Sabbath, the day of worship and of rest, a day given by God to mankind to reflect upon him. And this would be radical. This would be a radical um, event, a radical understanding. It'll stir up the Jews to put them on a course that will get us to the cross. But what I want us to see this morning, I want us to see Jesus' authority and power on display. I want us to, to see how Jesus shows us He is that Messiah. And I want us to see that through four different aspects of Him. I want us to see how Jesus works all things out in His timing according to His purpose. I want us to see this morning how the words of Jesus bring healing. I want us to see this morning that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. And then lastly this morning, I want us to see that Jesus is persecuted for speaking the truth. Each of these validate His authority and show us that He indeed is Lord. Let's begin this morning with His ability to work out all things in His timing according to His purpose. Now a lot of scholars believe that this feast was most likely the Passover. That's why He's in Jerusalem. We're not exactly sure, but He does find Himself there in observance of Jewish custom. And while he was in town, he found himself at this gate. This gate is the sheep gate. It's not really referenced or mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. But this gate would most likely be the place where the priest would bring the animals to the temple for slaughter. This was a, a, a workman's gate. Um, if, if any of you, in my mind, I picture it, if any of you have ever been to a rodeo or worked with cattle, um, it's like those loading troughs where they get people, get the animals out from the field and into the temple. Make sure they don't run amok through the temple and do things they shouldn't be doing to, so they don't get blemished so they can be sacrificed. That was this gate. And, and by that gate... It was rarely used other than for this purpose. There was this pool, the pool of Bethesda or Bethsaida. There's different um, uh, ways that this can be spelled. Um, your, your Bible may translate it differently. We're told that this pool um, had a five-roofed or five-roofed colonnades. Interestingly enough, they have dug up this pool. They're pretty confident. Modern archaeologists feel very confident they know where this pool is and what it looked like because of this description. And we can point geographically to uh, where it is in Jerusalem. And what we know about this pool is that it was a uh, gathering place. It was a meeting place for the sick for the infirm, for those that had um, significant, severe ailments, the blind, the, the lame. And while we don't understand fully what's going on, it seems that either there was some superstition or some, uh, some evidence that we're not given that from time to time these waters would be churned. And when these waters were churned, stirred up, 
the person that came into the pool first was sometimes healed. There had to be some evidence of this taking place. Now, we don't have it. But it was enough of evidence that this man had been an invalid for 38 years and had been waiting at this pool for many, many, many years. Now, I want to pause really quickly. I don't often do this, but I think it's important. Look at your text with me just a moment. I need to clear something up. And I'm going to do something that I never do from the pulpit. I want you to raise your hand, look at your text, if your Bible has in it verse 4. Less than 5%. Where's the verse in everybody else's? Why does your Bible say 1, 2, 3, 5? As my translation does. Is that not odd? I found it odd. And so I sought this week to come to a conclusion. Why, for most of us, does our Bible omit verse 4 and yet recognize it by leaving the numbering the way that it is? This is what I have found. Verse 4, if you have it, or if you're familiar with this story, says, an angel from heaven often would come down and stir the waters with his own hand, which brought healing to the people. That can be found in manuscripts that date back to about 400 A.D. Those manuscripts were most commonly used, and for those of you that raised your hand, you're probably reading out of the King James Version of the Bible. Those records, going back to 400 A.D., had this verse present. However, if you go back further and since the writing of the King James, we have found older manuscripts which date back to 200 A.D. and early 300 A.D. that omit this verse. Which means it's not in the earliest reliable manuscripts we have. Therefore, it has not been included with our text. Now you have just gotten a crash course in, in textual analysis this morning. But it doesn't answer a practical question, and I still want to give you a practical answer. Why did your Bible, if it's the ESV or um, the NASB or whatever translation you have, why did it say, why did it still write one, two, three, five? Easy answer. Well, whether you're reading from the King James, the NIV, the ESV, the NASB, if I tell you to look at verse five, we all get to verse five, whether yours has four or not. And so most of the modern linguists decided for the sake of all of us being on the same page, we're going to number it that way. Now, some of you may have said, Aaron, that has nothing to do with the text this morning. It actually has a lot to do with the text, believe it or not, for two reasons. One, the numerical system we have in our Bibles are irrelevant. They are added in to give us um, mile markers, if you will, so we can all reference it at the same place at the same time. But as far as the original text, they were not present. And so we are called, we are compelled to seek what the original text teaches us. But two, and this is why I find it most important, what is the point we're trying to make here? God works out all things in His timing according to His purpose. 
We have no idea why people believe there was healing in this pool. We don't know. We don't know if there were angels that came from heaven and stirred the waters. We don't know if that was just a belief that they had, and um, uh, we don't know if there was an underwater spring. We don't know if um, there were minerals in the water. We have no idea. But God did. God knew the purpose of this pool, and God knew what was going on. More than that, on this day, at this moment, after 38 years of being sick, what did this pool do for this man? It got him in contact with Jesus. Whether this pool has any medicinal purposes or not, miraculous purposes or not, on this day at this moment, lying by this pool, this man met Jesus. <laughs> now look, I don't know if many of you are like me. I'm, I'm, I'm afraid you probably are. You don't know what you're doing on Tuesday this week. You've written it down somewhere, but you've lost that note. And you meant to get it on the calendar, but you don't use that calendar that much. And even that may be true, but the family calendar says something completely different. And you're just not sure. And Tuesday's going to bring what Tuesday's going to bring. Can you imagine being this man, this invalid, for 38 years, wishing and wanting and hoping and praying for something to happen, for Jesus with pinpoint accuracy to show up on this day? Intentionally, purposefully. Jesus Christ works all things out in his timing according to his purposes. Now let's get practical for just a moment. This is very important for us to understand as Christians. This is also a hard point. Many of us have family members that have been dealing with ailments, with sicknesses, with hardships, and we've been praying and praying and praying and praying for years to the point sometimes we feel that God is not listening. God's timing is impeccable. It just may not be when we think it should happen. Think about the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament, over 400 years of silence from God. Well, some of the last words in the book of Malachi, a Savior's coming. We've got to wait generations for the Savior to have come. But I don't say that to discourage you. I actually say it for the opposite. I say it for your encouragement. God does not forget His appointments. God does not forget what He intends and plans to do. God does not forget His people. God has a plan for all of us, for all of our lives. For He formed us, He created us. God allowed this man, God created this man lame so that 38 years later He would meet Jesus. If He's doing that in this man's life, what's He doing in yours? in your timing, in your prayer life, in your faith journey? What is He doing for you, for your family members, for your business, for your friends, for your neighbors, for your coworkers? That question I, I can't necessarily answer other than God has a plan, but for this man, I can answer what God had planned to do, and He planned to heal him. We see that in our next section here. And I love what we've been seeing in John. Um, John gives us an insight into Jesus not seen in the other Gospels. Jesus is the master of Q&A. Jesus is great at questioning people. I love it. We saw it with Nicodemus. We saw it with the woman at Samaria. And we saw it with the disciples of John. And we see it now with this invalid. 38 years this man has been lame. 
Jesus meets him in a crowd at a pool, and the first words out of Jesus' mouth, do you want to be healed? Like, can you put yourself in this man's shoes? Like, you would expect a little indignation from this guy, right? Why do you think I'm here, Jesus? Well, why do you think I'm here, sir? He doesn't know it's Jesus yet. Why else would I be laying by this pool with all of these other invalids year after year, moment after moment? What do you think I'm doing? He doesn't respond that way, thankfully. That would have been disrespectful. Do you want to be healed? The Savior, the the Creator, the Maker of the universe, He comes to you and asks, do you want to be healed? Demonstrating He knows the needs of our hearts. Jesus knows the needs of this man. He knows this man intimately because He created this man. And the man, not recognizing it's Jesus, not knowing who he is, he he gives him a practical answer. Well, sir, I can't be healed. I can't get down to the pool. The pool is stirred and healing happens, but then there's a rush to the pool. There's no way I can get down there. I'm an invalid. I can't move quick enough to get down. Where does the man place his faith? He places his faith in his circumstances. He places his faith in what's before him, in the, the opportunities that he sees, in reality in some senses. But where does Jesus call all of us to place our faith? In him. Not in this world, not in our circumstances, not what surrounds us, but in him. Look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. Verse 9, and at once the man was healed. He took up his bed and walked. I'll show you something remarkable in this text. It has nothing to do with the water. Not a thing. Jesus did not pick up the water and pour it on this man. Jesus did not throw the man into the water. Jesus did not tell everyone to get out of the way so I can send this man into this water. Jesus said, be healed. Well, he said, get up and walk. And the man was healed. Showing, remember the point here is to show the lordship of Jesus. Who's in charge? Jesus Christ. Who has the power? Jesus Christ. Who has the authority? Jesus Christ. And note how the man obeys. He's not walked for 38 years. He's never walked. He's been an invalid all his life. Jesus says get up and walk. Something this man doesn't even know what walking is. He got up and walked. Those of you that have had surgeries or have gone through um, uh, different forms of trauma, um, that's not easy, is it? After my my knee was torn up, it took a year and a half of PT to get back to normal functioning. I didn't think I would ever walk again. Jesus said, get up and walk, and the man got up and walked. The words of Jesus Christ have power. The words of Jesus Christ perform healing. The words of Jesus Christ demonstrate who He is. And so what is the practical application there? What can we learn from this? What is the lesson? Simple. Listen to the words of Jesus. Listen to the words of the Savior. Listen to the words of the One who can bring healing who can bring restoration. Here's a reality that we'll see in just a moment in the text, but it's worth noting here. This man's still going to die. It's going to happen. 
Toward the end of this, his life, this man's probably going to get frail and walking's probably going to get hard again. Which probably wasn't that far looking at lifespans at that time. Probably didn't have that long to enjoy his, his, his limbs. Jesus healed him physically, yes. But he had a greater problem. He had a greater need. He had a greater injury than his physical state. And that was his spiritual well-being. I'm, I'm not saying that Jesus Christ will, and I'm not saying Jesus won't, heal extraordinary infirmities nowadays. He's certainly capable and it's within his power, his right, and his authority to do so. But what we should look at and look about from this text, Jesus can heal something greater than physical ailments. Jesus Christ can heal our hearts. Jesus Christ can bring healing that doesn't just last now for the 82, 83 years is the average lifespan of an American. It's not just last for 83 years, but that lasts for eternity. Jesus can bring understanding and healing to our souls. That's the kind of healing that we want from Jesus. That's what we should ask of Him. But before we talk about that, we've got a problem. Another problem. This one's not linguistic. This one's practical. The second half of verse 9 tells us, this is our third point, all of that took place. And then almost as an afterthought, the text says, now that was the Sabbath. Uh-oh. <laughs> Some of you young ones are working very hard on the catechism. I know you've been studying it at home and um, here at the church. You probably, I don't know if you've gotten to this one yet, but there's a question. What is the fourth commandment? And the answer is this. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Party foul. Jesus has disobeyed His own command. At least that's what the Pharisees thought. You weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. The Pharisees find this man, this invalid, carrying his things on the Sabbath. And they see him and, hey, sir, Jeremiah 17 says you can't even cover your bundle on the Sabbath. You are working. You are in violation of God's law. What do you have to say for yourself? The man says, well, the guy who just healed me told me to get up and walk, so I'm listening to him. <laughs> I'm doing what he said. Pharisees come back and go, oh, really? So who is this fella? We'd like to get to know him. What's his name? The man says, I have no idea. He told me to get up and walk, so I got up and walked. In their mind, they've got a Sabbath violator. They've, they've got a man who's not only violating the Sabbath, but he's telling others to violate the Sabbath. And we've got a, a, a real stalemate. No one knows who he is. This would be a, a remarkable but unfortunate story if the text ended here. Because remember what I told you. Jesus has addressed this man's physical state, but he's not gotten to the heart quite yet. 
But, but praise God that Jesus does not leave him where he is. Verse 14, Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Was that a threat? Was Jesus threatening to re-break his legs? Was Jesus threatening to cripple him again? No. Jesus was telling this man, your soul is at risk. You need to turn your heart to me. Repent of your sin, or else what you'll face in eternity is far worse than the time you spent lame. What a blessing by Jesus Christ that he came back to this man. That he didn't just physically heal him and walk away. This was a risk by Jesus. No one knew him. He was in the clear. He could escape freely. But Jesus made a point to come back to this man to preach to him repentance and salvation that he might sin no more. Because Jesus loved this man. Jesus spoke the words of truth to this man and it came at a cost. We don't know whether by fear or by conviction. Maybe he was witnessing and testifying. But we know that the man went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. And that leads us to our last point, which demonstrates the authority of Jesus. Here in the last verses, we understand the heart of the Jewish elite. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. In their eyes, he was a Sabbath breaker. But Jesus tells them. He, he knows their heart. He knows what they're murmuring about. He says, My Father is working until now, and I am working. The Lord has the right, the authority, the ability, the responsibility to work on the Sabbath because it's His. It belongs to Him. And praise God that He does. Maybe we find ourselves saying, I don't know if that reconciles. Well, stop and think about it like this. I talked about it this morning in Sunday school. None of us have had a heart attack since we entered the room. That's God working. The oxygen in this room is sustainable for life. We're not overdosed with carbon monoxide. That's God's doing. Aren't we glad that God works on the Sabbath? God has every right to do so. But here's the real kicker. Jesus is saying, so do I. Which leads us to one or two conclusions. One, blasphemy. This man violates the Sabbath. This man claims to be God, this man claims to have the authority of God. Which the sentence for that is death. It leads us to realize this. The Pharisees were right. Unless, or but, let me finish my sentence, y'all don't panic. Unless Jesus was speaking the truth. If Jesus was speaking the truth, then he had every right to do what he did. If Jesus wasn't speaking the truth, they had every right to act in the way that they acted. But Jesus' persecution here is for the truth. 
I want to be very clear on that. I don't want to leave you wondering or hanging or, or questioning. The evidence, the textual evidence, the prophecy fulfillment, the promises that were made, the witness to what happened in Jesus, his life and his ministry makes it very clear he is who he says he is. So the Pharisees are wrong. That leads us to verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. It's not bad enough that he's a Sabbath breaker, but he was calling himself God and God his own Father, making himself equal with God. It's the words of his own mouth. His life demonstrates his authority. His miracles demonstrate his authority. His teaching demonstrates his authority. But by his own witness, he says, I am God. I don't buy it when someone says Jesus Christ never claims to be God or be equal to God. He says it in the text again and again and again and again and again. We haven't even got to the I am statements of John. Those are coming. I cannot wait. I hope you're excited about them. Where he says over and over, I am him. Even though his ministry didn't look the way that many thought it would look, even though his life was a humble life, even though he submitted himself to the cross, he allowed himself to be born in a manger, Jesus Christ is God. He is who he says he is. He has the ability, the authority, and the power to do what he says he will do. And what does Jesus promise? I want to end with this. We've been in John... I told you John 3.16 is probably the most read, most known, most looked up verse in all of Scripture. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. What does Jesus do? He loves His people dearly. He loves His people so much that he would end in a crowded pool on this day to minister to this man and then implicate himself by giving the man his, this name for the sake of teaching this man about salvation, risking the wrath of the Jews so that he would be healed, not just physically but spiritually. This Jesus, with his authority, laid it all down, sacrificing himself that we might live. That Jesus loves you and me. And we're called in response to believe in Him by faith. Believe in Him. Repent of your sin, turn from it, and turn toward Christ. And you will be saved. Not just here and now, but for all eternity. That's what Jesus did with His authority. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank You so much for our Savior. Lord, we thank You for Jesus' authority, His power. We thank You that He is who He says He is. We thank You that He ministers to those who are sick and hurting. He cares for the invalid, even if it risks His own name. Lord, I thank You that Jesus not only cares about our physical state, but more so our spiritual state. That He calls all of us to Go and sin no more. He tells us to believe in Him, to take Him by faith, to trust His name, and we will be forgiven. 
Lord, especially at this time of year, as we consider the cradle, may we also be drawn to the cross. Jesus began a life as humble. He ended his life with nothing to his name, but it didn't stop there. He didn't stay in the grave, yet he rose from the dead. And is now over us, praying for us and preparing a home for us. Because he is who he says he is. And he's going to do what he said he would do. And Lord, help us until that time when Jesus comes to call us all home. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.